Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I always say I watch movies about marriage, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, this reminds me of Dan, you know? Uh, <laughs> You but know. like what movie reminds you of your relationship? Oh, yeah, scenes you? from a marriage. No, oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen that, actually. <laughs> a marriage story? A marriage story, yeah. <laughs> am I, like, am oh. I Adam Driver? Are you? <laughs> um, no, you're Scarlett Johansson. Okay, I'm, the, I'm the hero that the audience likes. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Daniels are a filmmaker duo made up of, yes, two men named Daniel, Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan, who also goes by Dan. They are the writers and directors of the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a very strange and moving film about the metaverse and generational trauma that also may be the first award season darling that has not one, but a few dildo gags. The story follows Evelyn Wang, played by Michelle Yeoh, as she tries to save the world while being audited by an IRS agent, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. With nothing but a stack of receipts, I can trace the ups and downs of your lives. It does not look good. Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert are both in their 30s. Kwan is 34, Scheinert is 35, and they've been working together since they were film students in their early 20s. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once has been a massive hit. And as we started our conversation, it seemed like they're still getting used to the crush of attention that it's brought the two of them. I know you all have done a lot of interviews together, but, um, you know, don't don't feel like you have to wait for me to turn the question to the other. Like, please feel free to just kind of add, yeah, add on to what the other is saying. Yeah, you're going to regret that because we talk way too much. Yeah, we have the opposite problem. <laughs> you're going to be like, you already answered the question. You don't have Stop to. Stop talking. Why are both Daniels just going back and forth? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Just talking with the Daniels, you immediately feel the way they collaborate. And I wanted to know more about this relationship, how it started, and how it's developed. Dan Kwan grew up in Massachusetts. His parents met in Syracuse after immigrating from Hong Kong and Taipei. Daniel Scheinart is white, from Alabama, back several generations. Somehow, together, their taste and sense of humor combine to take their audiences to some very far-out places— like, for instance... She appears to be in a universe where everyone has 
hot dogs instead of fingers. I mean, it just doesn't matter. The first question I have for you is, um, whose idea was hot dogs for fingers? <laughs> I, I think it's Dan Kwan. I don't know. I, I, I think usually what happens is I, I say things that I shouldn't say, and then before I can take it back, Shiner says, yes, that's good. Let's keep going with that. <laughs> yeah, and we, we also like have been doing like weird body horror comedy sh- shorts for like, 12 years and so like yeah a long like, time you can basically like pick any body part and we've made <laughs> jokes about it in the past but I do remember you pitching that to me and me being not convinced <laughs> yeah I mean you should have <laughs> I was like huh well I will you know, we'll hold on to that idea we'll see if, I don't know if I want to ask you know uh, f- famous actresses I admire to to do that but look at us now Daniel Scheinart and Dan Kwan first met in film school at Emerson College in Boston during the late 2000s. Scheinart was a year ahead of Kwan, and they had different creative ambitions and anxieties. I went to film school and pretty quickly realized I wasn't director material. I was like, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't have leadership qualities. I don't have the confidence. I don't want to make other people work on my ideas. It didn't feel right to me, and I was very uncomfortable with that did did you when you were discovering that about yourself, Dan? Did that feel like a f- like a failure, like something you were ashamed of, or something you just were clear, kind of learning about yourself? Oh, I mean, <laughs> that's such a great question because at the time, I don't think I could have put into words what I was feeling. But I, th- I think shame is sort of uh, my default mode. I'm, I'm working on it now, but especially back then, a lot of everything was framed through shame. So of course, that was definitely framed through that as well. Um, but also, you know, because that was my default mode, I'm, I'm I'm very flexible. Where I'm like, okay, you know what, this sucks, but I'm gonna I'll, I'll pivot again as I always do. And so I uh, thought I went into animation because I was like, okay, this is a way for me to create without having to feel all those burdens of directing that I was I, I didn't feel right for. Um, and then that's when actually when I met Shiner, we met in an animation class, and uh, you know. In a lot of ways, I owe a lot to Shiner because he's the opposite. <laughs> Just confident as hell, confident yeah. <laughs> to a fall. Like, uh, I mean, especially in film school, I think I had the yes. attitude of like, I'm going to get my money's worth. Like, I was like, holy crap, film school costs too much. And I was constantly doing the math in my head of like how, like a two-hour class, how like that's hundreds of dollars. And like, if the teacher would play a movie in class, I'd be like, this is absurd. I paid $200 so that Emerson College could show me Cloverfield. I've already seen Cloverfield. <laughs> um, so I was that kind of asshole. Did you, like, um, did you think you were going to be friends? Like, do you have, it sounds like you have slightly different personalities or ways of presenting socially. Is that right? Yeah, we had creativity crushes, but not friend, like, material vibes. Uh, we were, we were like, very different. Uh, and then we did become friends um, after I had graduated. I had a summer job at the this summer camp that teaches filmmaking to like middle and high schoolers, and mm. our job as film students was just supervise the kids while they make their movies. Mm. Um, it was the best job ever, oh. like, yeah. even so we, to this day. We got paid like so twenty fun. bucks an hour just to like hang out with kids while they make their movies. Um, and so then I got Dan a job because uh, we had hung out a bit, and then. I remember, like, our first day working together at that camp, we kind of, like, suddenly we were like, wait, you're, we actually have a lot in common because we both were just kind of, re- like, have camp counselor vibes, and we were encouraging our kids to make increasingly insane short films. Uh, 
I think was it the first day that I almost that was the same day that I almost got you fired. No, I almost got fired. You almost got yourself fired. And yeah, you almost got all your kids sent home. Yeah, because <laughs> wait, what? I was teaching them about uh, long lenses and wide angle lenses. You know, that was the assignment. Um, like, uh huh. And I was like, long lenses are great for hidden camera stuff like jackass uh, <laughs> because you can hide in the bushes with a long lens and no one can see the camera. Uh, so why don't we do that? And uh, and then my kids ran off and they told me they had just gotten some lettuce. and they some were gonna, salad. They were going to yeah. throw a salad on somebody while hiding in the bushes. And I was like, well, don't throw it on a student. Uh, throw it on my friend Dan. Uh, but I didn't know they had filled the salad with uh, like beans, s- soda, meat, beans, soda, cheese, salad dressing. Like it was gross. And then somehow, somehow the soda actually digested some of the food, so it actually was putrid. It yeah, it kind of like, had vomit vibes. Exactly. He was like, "Did you just throw vomit on me?" Yeah, it was really confusing. <laughs> uh, and so then my ki- my kids got taken to the like camp heads and threatened to get kicked out, and I I took the fall for it because it really was my fault. And I I went and explained. Yeah, it. you were the adult. <laughs> I was, it was literally my job is to supervise, and I was there like being like, "Hey, why don't you throw things at adults?" Um, but uh. They just said, don't let it happen again, Daniel, and luckily I got to stay. But it it was a a very clarifying moment because I do think now looking back on it, it was actually really informative for our process. Growing up, I was really active in the church, and every Mm -hmm. single summer there was this thing called VBS, Vacation Vacation Bible Bible School. School. Mm -hmm. Yes, you you are familiar. Um, And, you know, from a pretty young age, I I was very um, active in and being a part of that energy, just um, you know, starting the morning warm ups and doing the songs with everyone, and, and and basically I became like my church's MC or whatever. And uh, looking back on it now, oh. I, I, I see you do my... have leadership qualities, Dan. Exactly, but so the, like in I a didn't classroom, realize that at the time, yeah. yeah, and like a classroom, Dan's so shy, and then like it's so weird. It was so weird to see that switch turn and be like, holy cow! Like he's like, you know really controlling the group and the the energy and the vibes once this kind of but this is something this vibe. is something that like me and Shiner discovered slowly over the past you know 12 years is that uh as directors we work much better less as like um, dictators or you know the, the the boss of the of the company and and when we switch over to camp counselor energy it's it's way more effective way more fun and it just plays to our strengths So they each liked a particular kind of community building, and they brought this to their work, even as their work styles and social instincts were very different. They considered this a matter of personality, until just a few years ago, when Dan Kwan realized his brain works differently because he has ADHD. It was about five or six years ago, and the funny story is that uh, we were writing this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and we thought that the main character was going to be incredibly um, distractible. We wanted this film to be about how impossible it is to to live in the current age without being distracted, without being present. Yeah. And so we thought, oh, maybe the main character could have ADHD. Um, and that's why she's able to jump between different universes. And and we were like, well, we should probably do some research. We don't want to you know, portray this in the wrong way. Um, and then that night I was up until like four in the morning just researching on my phone and and basically taking all the like the the unofficial quizzes, like do you have ADHD, all that stuff, and just crying because I was, uh, you know, I 
it, it was this beautiful moment where I realized why my life had been so hard um, for so mm. long and also why I think I have so much shame. And one of the things that uh, we talk about often within the ADHD community is how um, our motivation structures within our, our minds um, aren't working properly. And so we're constantly having to chase the dopamine, right? You're, you're trying to ride that wave, looking for the thing that will keep you motivated, keep you engaged, um, not just with the activity you're doing, but with life in general. And so... That was a, a, a that diagnosis has been just huge for uh, me, as far as my self esteem and my self image and understanding, um, yeah, how to move through this world. And so, yeah, this this movie, um, you know, was a kind of kind of saved my life a little bit. You were doing character research and yes. then landed on something that felt true exactly. for you. Yeah. And one more question about this: when you described um, chasing the dopamine hits. For you, is that related to chasing novelty? Like, does it have to be new? Um, often, yes. It's it's novelty is is definitely something that people with ADHD are chasing after. But for me, a lot of the dopamine chasing is about discovering new things. And so, whenever we start a new script, I I go and find all the books I can, and I, I read all, I listen to all the podcasts I can, and and I just I I, I write little essays, and I try to understand, um, you know, first of all why I'm so interested in it, but also how it, it can apply to our next script. And so, there's that part of it, but then also the other half of it is like what is fun, what is um, what is just pleasurable. There are very few things as fulfilling as as finishing a film with a bunch of friends, you know. And so things yeah. like that um, keep you keep us motivated and keep us excited. Um, but then, of course, you know, um, we we've also just built in a system of a lot of um, a lot of breaks from work. You know, like oftentimes now when we write, we're just uh, skateboarding in my back alleyway, and uh, like I think we're we're starting to embrace this. Um, this thing where work and play, the line is is um, kind of fuzzier. Hmm. It's the two of you skateboarding in the alleyway? Yeah, we're both so good. No, yeah. I'm terrible. The listeners should I'm just so picture bad. us like doing kickflips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Quan can almost do an ollie. Uh, and, uh, uh, just, just for they're con- hard. Just for context, though, like, <laughs> this, this is all a part of like my post-diagnosis life. Most of my life, I was so bad at everything because I was so distractible and I wouldn't, I had no follow through, but I just, because of that, I was so afraid to start anything. So I just didn't, I, I just spent a decent chunk of my life not trying new things. Hmm. And now that I'm diagnosed and I understand that I'm probably going to uh, fall out of love with a new hobby or whatever, you know, just knowing that eventually my brain is going to be like, you know what, I don't care about this anymore. Uh, going into it, knowing that it's going to end, I'm able to just embrace it for what it is. And so I, I just started skating for the first time as an adult. So I'm in my mid thirties. Um, and I just started doing it like a couple years ago and I'm really bad at it, but like it, it's, that is growth. Honestly, me being okay with myself being bad at something is like, uh, that's, that's a new development for sure. Finding these new ways of working together took some experimenting. Because over the years, there have been some false starts. Like when they were trying to finish their first feature film called Swiss Army Man. And they were really struggling. It was the hardest thing we'd ever done. And we we were having this argument about, like, I thought it was too hard. And I was like... If you this... thought making this feature film was too hard. And yeah. You, it, I was it, like... It became not fun. If If every feature film is as hard as this... I don't want to do them anymore was kind of my mm-hmm. stance. And and mm-hmm. Quan was more like, 
we could do better. Let's make the next one better. I don't care if it's harder. We just have to do better, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was, so there was a, there was a bit of an impasse there and, and we gave each other the space and grace to <laughs> kind of, uh, to, um, experiment with the process to do, to do both and to try to make it better, but also try to make it, um, behind the scenes better, not just on screen better. Wait, how did you give each other that space and grace? Like you said that in a jokey way, but like, that's hard if yeah. you're, have very different ideas about sounds like I mean one thing a lot of things often it's just time totally. I think giving ourselves time to live and and not be impatient I know this this industry needs to move so fast and wants you to move so fast and I think one of the great things about both of us is neither of us even though we love making films and that are successful we're not chasing success we're not chasing those things we are we, we, we both have a, a very shared interest in just making things um yeah, the things that we want and things that we think will reflect the world back to mm-hmm. itself, and um, and so because of that, we 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 have time to give us each other the space and grace. And I mean, to develop, you know, it was funny, like uh, you know, back to that night when Dan was up all night in bed. Uh, <laughs> that week, we had been having some of the most intense disagreements about the edit on Swiss Army Man. Oh, we were right. like still editing, oh. and uh, and we had decided like let's get drinks. Um, away from the computer and just talk about, you know, uh, process process and how we're doing. And so, like, I kind of came in, like, with, like, okay, my, the things I want to complain about. And, uh, and Dan sat down. And I was like, hey, I think I'm a, I think I'm a bad creative partner because I have ADHD and I'm undiagnosed. And, it, and it just, like, took the wind out of my sails. I was like, <laughs> I was like, no way, man. What, what does that mean? And, um, I do think that is one of a hundred adjustments was just finding, vocabulary for the for like the our process and being like, oh this is like part of what makes Dan so creative and talented is also what makes him a little difficult to work unreliable with. <laughs> you know it's like oh he's capable of hyper focus and yeah. and a little less good at uh consistent focus and yes. like great I'll take it no notes like but mm. now we have a word for it that's less you know judgmental or angry and it's just like oh this is Hey man, this is happening. You no, know? that's that's a very good example of, of active grace, um, which is you know, I'm very appreciative. But also, I'm appreciative that you did the work and figured it out. You know, like the self reflection, f- right. you know, paid off for everybody. Um, well, and that you got to like you were. It wasn't a conflict that you were just having by proxy by fighting over edit notes. You instead like figured out you needed to step away from the computer and have a conversation. Yeah, totally. Where you saw each other a little more clearly. I think I made that pretty apparent. I was being a big baby, and it, like it was very obvious that like it wasn't about the thing on camera. I was just like, but I think I that is where my brain often goes. Is mm-hmm. it's as it it like telescopes out and goes like, there's something bigger here. The communication's right. bad. Yeah. It's not huh. about the color of the paint. It's about the way you're talking about the color of the paint. <laughs> yeah. And and when you're a big baby, what do you do? What did that look like? Um, I, I like, uh, I kept leaving the edit a lot. I would leave Dan and, and our editor alone. And then like, uh, and I, I, I just stormed out one night. I was like, good luck. I don't, I don't want, I, I, I don't want to be here. Uh, try stuff. I don't, I don't give a shit anymore. Um, one, one way I pitched it to Dan, like one of the, I get butt hurt when um, he'll be hard on our movie and not acknowledge that it's my movie too. You know, he'll oh, it hurts your feelings. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like he'll frame it and he'll think he's being self-deprecating, 
but our lives are so intertwined that's like no 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 you're being us deprecating yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm standing over here <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know um, us deprecating us deprecating <laughs> Coming up, how the surprise success of their film Everything Everywhere All at Once is changing both Daniels in real time. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're still in the middle of so much of it. We could do a part two interview next year and see if it went to our heads or if it drove <laughs> us insane. Or How many cards you have? Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll set, a, set a date. We'll <laughs> see then. turn away from this conversation about movie making in Hollywood for a minute to let you know about a loss I'm absorbing in my life because I could use your help. Earlier this week, my family said goodbye to our nearly 14-year-old Australian shepherd, Jack. He was truly a very sweet boy who was right there when I fell in love with Arthur, when we got married, when we first became parents, when we brought home our second baby. We moved a lot of places over those years, and he became home for us. So figuring out how to love him as he declined and got more disoriented and more stressed has been really hard. The question of when and how to end his life was an existential and logistical puzzle that made me well up with tears whenever I considered it over these last months and weeks. And then I'd cry again when I thought about how to bring in our little kids to this experience. And now, having watched him die and noticing his absence make my eyes well up for different reasons. I miss him. I'm sad he's only a memory now. Anyway, it's made death feel very close and unavoidable. And I'd like to hear your stories of saying goodbye to cherished pets. How did you do it? How did you avoid going out and picking up a new puppy immediately? Because that's my current phase of grief. Tell us about saying goodbye to a pet you've loved. You can record a voice memo. Tell us your pet's names, how you think back on his or her end, and how you've carried that intimate exposure to death forward. And send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I look forward to listening. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. As Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert have been working together, they've also made film projects separately and have been building their own families. Kwan is a father of a young son and is married to animator Kirsten Lepore, who happened to work on Marcel the Shell, another of our team's favorite movies of 2022. Scheinert has been with his partner, Stephanie, a Planned Parenthood organizer he met in college for more than a dozen years. But the two Daniels keep collaborating on film projects because of what their contrasting creative instincts spark together. One of them, Scheinert, can be more of the world-weary skeptic, while Quan is all about possibility and wild ideas. I love everything. I'm like, this is awesome. This yeah, is great. You're this such a beautiful. pushover. You're like, oh, great, nice to meet it? you. And yeah. I'm like, no, it's not. You're part of the problem. You know? Like I, yeah. you know, I'm so reactionary right. sometimes. But I, I, yeah, I, I think you know. Obviously, you can unpack a lot of different reasons why we we turned turned out this way. But it's it's a really. Um, You're a great therapist, by the way. Mm, am I? No, I'm talking to her. <laughs> oh yeah, I was gonna say. I was like, I was like, I don't think I'm a good therapist. No, yeah, don't release this. But this has been very good for us. <laughs> um, I, I have, I have. When you said butt hurt, um, Daniel Shiner, it made me think about like. I, there's so much your your this conversation has been so feelings forward and you both are describing yourselves and each other with such awareness and self-awareness and um but when you said butt hurt it reminded me that you're also two dudes um mm. and I I, I what wonder, girls don't like, say butt hurt <laughs> I don't think as much I no, think it's, it's more no, like, they say uh, hurt. In, in, oh right yeah okay <laughs> so there we go <laughs> do they but um did you uh like whether through talking about your work and the kind of work you wanted to make or just talking about the kinds of the ways you expect to be treated by one another and want to treat each other like have you had direct conversations about like masculinity the kind of men you are mm. totally um mm. but i i do think we're 
funnily enough, we're like kind of bad communicators about our personal lives. Um, we communicate with each other through creative ideas. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. like it's like while pitching, we're learning things about ourselves. You know. Yeah. yeah. We never really set out to say, hey, let's do something about masculinity. Like, growing up, most of my friendships that really clicked were actually with other, were with women, and I, I, I had a hard time fitting in, in most male activities, did not do well with sports teams, did not do well with um, a lot of that stuff. And, and anytime I tried to imitate it, it, it would feel really awful. And so I actually, I kind of pushed back against it. I, I found, uh, I got into the punk scene, the local emo mm-hmm. punk scene, and there's much more of like a a, a queer open uh, space in the punk world where people can dress at however they want, and, and and I found that really exciting and beautiful. And I, yeah, I, I started yeah I started to dress different. Most people um, at my school, you know, they actually thought I was gay and I wasn't gay, and that was also a whole other thing. I was very confused, and I'm, I'm so grateful for. All the queer thinkers and writers and activists who have decoupled um, sexuality and, and gender um, for us all, so that we have the language to understand ourselves better. Because, like at the time, I remember the, the phrase um, "metrosexual" was getting passed around, and I was like, "Ah, huh, maybe that am I metrosexual? Is that me?" Uh-huh. And then, like, I, I tried it on for a week. And I was like, "Hell no, <laughs> that's not what, like it's such." A, obviously, it's a problematic phrase now, but at the time, it, it was like, "Ew, this is that's not what I'm talking about." But thanks for trying. Um, and and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I wore a lot of girls' clothes, I, and I you know paint my nails. My my mom was very you know being very traditional Chinese immigrant was afraid that I was gay, and we grew up in the church. So there's it was a very complicated, strange thing that um, only now that I'm an adult and I have my own son, I'm, I'm starting to really feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful, like again, for the language that the queer community has provided straight men like me, because I do think that when the queer community is lifted up, it actively helps cis straight men. And right. I don't think people see that enough. It's like we are trapped in all these boxes and we're just afraid to open the doors to let it all mix together. As I was watching everything everywhere all at once, you know, it's so much about the necessity of critique and honestly looking at pain and absurdity and suffering and misunderstandings. But there's also a moment pretty early in the film where there's conversation about the decline of community and institutions and durable relationships. Our institutions are crumbling. Nobody trusts their neighbor anymore. And you stay up at night wondering to yourself, how can we get back? And the question is, how can we get back? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, like, do you think of those questions as related? That on the one hand, you're interested in, like, blowing up labels. And on the other hand, you're like, what else is there that, how do we maintain some kind of connective tissue? Oh, my God. There's so much to unpack in this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we always kind of made fun of that speech as, like, our version of a MAGA speech, you know? Just like— Oh, interesting. This is the guy who's like, we got to get our institutions back or whatever. Uh, and I think we kind of made fun of it a bit but tried to but tried to articulate the part of it that's somewhat relatable, that that is, like, understandable that, like, our parents' generation is scared of change and um, and— and ultimately, I, I do think the whole movie was kind of like an exercise in us, you know, um, not just being the, like, 
label-exploding, screaming millennials, but trying to connect with and learn from the generation that came before us and, and empathize with, you know, the the good parts of, you know, the society that came before us. and But also, like, empathize with just how hard and beautiful and ch- but challenging it is to change your mind or to adjust or to move in new directions, you know? Um, yeah. There's one more quote I want to to throw out there, but I don't remember who it's from, and I'm so sorry. Um, but Probably me. Yeah, it's you, exactly. You're a genius. <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to quote you right now. Yeah. Um, it, I'm going to paraphrase, but they basically said, like, society as a whole, we all need to believe that there is stability. But the artist's job is to remind himself or herself or themselves and the world that nothing in this world is stable. We can do better. We can be better. In in order to get there, we we might have to, you know, break some eggs and and feel some pain. And and um, I, I think uh, that's, yeah, I think that's where we're at right now. I think we're all feeling a lot of pain. I, I think that's a James Baldwin quote. I just looked it up. Yes, thank um, you, James Baldwin, mm. genius. <laughs> a society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know, and he must let us know that there is nothing stable under heaven. Thank you. I love that you just could look that up. Yeah, he said thank it better. You, technology, exactly. Cool, dude. Um, I, and how does that sit with you as a parent, Dan? That idea of like stability being a mirage. Hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful and horrifying question. Um, <laughs> parenting has been just the hardest thing and the most like life changing, paradigm shifting thing for me, and um, and that's been really good for me. Um, but one thing that I'm realizing now, looking back at my own childhood and looking at my my son now, who is almost four, is that um, one of the best gifts you can give to a child is, I don't want to say the illusion of stability, but this magic trick where you create, you manifest stability in a chaotic world. If you can give them that safe launching pad, they will be so uh, resilient and emotionally intelligent and capable of of. Uh, becoming stable, st- like stable for someone else, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, at no fault to my parents, you know, they did the best with what they could. I I grew up and I, I I've become a very unstable human being. Um, and I look at people like Daniel and realize the reason why I am drawn to them and I need them in my life is because they grew up in a uh, in households that gave them that stability, and so. It's not, I'll say stability is not impossible, it, but it's also not a given. And in fact, it has to be, it's something that has to be protected and fought for. And so as a parent, this is what I'm thinking about. And I'm doing a terrible job sometimes with my son. It's like so hard to break free from these things. And so um, anyways, I'm just, I'm really grateful for the people around me who give me an example of what a confident, stable <laughs> uh, existence can look like. And I want to be able to pay that forward to the people around me. And Daniel Scheinert, is that is the way Dan described you? Does that feel accurate inside yourself? Like, do you feel that sense of kind of like um, stable footing? I think uh, so, sometimes, you know, making a project that's all about reflecting on these generation gaps has definitely kind of made me reflect on like some of the like extremely lucky things I got out of, you know, my relationship with with my family and what I learned from the generations before me. 
only now as an adult am I kind of hearing like these stories about what my dad's childhood was like. Uh, I'm learning that like his childhood was pretty bonkers and he was a completely different parent to me than he than my granddad was to him and like seeing like just how huge of a deal that is to be like holy cow that's not an easy thing to do to hmm. to choose to be like no I'm going to be this kind of parent and he like put his career was like kind of his second priority maybe third you know like he had kids and was like no no I'm going to be a dad took like a 3 year sabbatical to just hmm. be a dad for a while he like I don't want to shit talk my granddad. He was great. I grew up loving him. But like now I'm just hearing these stories and being like, oh, wow, like my childhood was different. He parented in a very different way. Uh-huh. Especially in the 90s. Every right. every 90s movie was about how dads were never there <laughs> yeah. at home. <laughs> and I'm from the South. Like right. I'm like a third or fourth generation redneck. And like on both sides, it goes back into like some really desperate, impoverished times. And like, yeah, some some really epic cycles got broken. And I'm so lucky. You mentioned earlier that um, when you talked about what your hopes are for the, the things you make together, that that um, financial success or, or success at the box office hasn't been the thing that you've articulated as your mission. Like, what is it? What is it? How have you committed to each other about what you're trying to do with what you're making? Mm. I have this spiel I sometimes go on that, like, you know, as a, as a young person, certain filmmakers inspired me. Um, but then I would realize, like, some of them only make one good movie. And, and I was like, or they burn out and they disappear. And, and I was like, well, then that doesn't seem like a career that I want. Uh, I actually want to have a career. And, and so then I was like, oh, who, who makes lots of good things? Those are the people I should look up to. And then you start hearing that a lot of filmmakers are assholes. And I was like, okay, who uh, makes, has a whole career making lots of movies and they're not mean? Um, and they're good family people. And then I realized even those people are like absentee parents. And like yeah. Dan and I love like uh, kids and like being parents has always been super important to both of us. So then we were like, okay, what we're looking for is a sustained career where we're not mean, the content's pretty good, and uh, we're also not absentee terrible partners and parents. You know, like mm-hmm. um, we're scared of burning out. We're scared of being turning into people we don't admire or want to be more than we're focused on um, the money, the awards, the celebrities, you know. Uh, yeah. But like, right now we're getting all of it. I, <laughs> I know. It's the, that's the wild <laughs> Slash, Except we're becoming assholes. Yeah, um, exactly. This that's... has all been a front. Um, like I think we're lucky that um, we weren't overnight successes, that we've had 12 years to kind of like find collaborators and, and find these these people in our lives that kind of keep us in check. Um, and we're going to need that, uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the coming months. Um, I think there's, there's definitely a part of us that, I mean, we definitely didn't expect to be talking, um, that the promotion tour this spring would just segue into more promotion and into award season. And that like, I feel like right now we're becoming like these like public figures, you know, like doing all doing things like this podcast and be like, this is this is barely even about the movie. This is just about us. Like, who cares? But, uh, but I care. It's been a really good conversation. I think, but <laughs> thank I, you. Thank I've you. learned a lot. And, and yeah, I think don't, don't be us deprecating, okay? <laughs> she cares. Well, 
That was filmmakers Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Their movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, is now available to stream. And there's also a link in our show notes to their first big breakthrough. The music video they directed for the song, Turn Down for What? It's definitely worth a watch if you haven't ever seen it. And it includes some hot dance moves from Dan Kwan. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke and Andrew Dunn. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. And special thanks to Lily Clark for her help with this episode and for taking the fun photos of the Daniels in our studio. You can see them on our Instagram at Death Sex Money. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thank you to Lynn Meissner in Chicago, Illinois, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Lynn and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. One other way the Daniels bring camp counselor energy to their projects is how they treat their filmmaking crew. Like for everything, everywhere, all at once, they reversed the regular order of the credits and put the names of production assistants at the very top. We were like, oh, that sounds fun. And we looked into it and there's no like union requirement. So like yeah. the, the end scroll of our movie, like we put the PAs up there and uh, someone came up to me after a screening a few weeks ago and started crying because it meant so much to her. And she was like, I came up as a PA and I, I saw the names come up in, in credits. And she like cried then and then cried again talking about it. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.